Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. On our show here, we look everywhere for lessons, for blueprints, to help us get where we need to be politically, inside and outside of the electoral system. In this episode, we are going to look to our history, specifically the history of leftist Canadian politics and the labor movement, and how they've worked together or not. We are lucky to have someone on who's written extensively on these key periods of our past, Moments where working class consciousness was heightened and acts of resistance far more common. Professor James Naylor is the author of books such as The Fate of Labor Socialism, The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and The Dream of a Working Class Future. He's also a contributor to For a Better World, The Winnipeg General Strike, and The Workers' Revolt. James is going to start us off in 1919 the year of the Winnipeg general strike, but also a lesser known political victory in Ontario that my co-host Santiago and I are particularly keen on hearing about. One of the major questions we try to answer goes at the political divide that appears to exist between rural and urban voters. And that is, why can't the NDP capture the rural vote? Professor Naylor's answer to that surprises us. In the end, we do see a lot of parallels between the history our guest provides and the current Canadian political situation. Maybe just not the ones we wanted to hear. Welcome. Thank you for taking time to join us, Professor Naylor. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, yes, I'm uh, Jim Naylor. I teach history at Brandon University of Manitoba, and I'm primarily a labor historian, and I've... Uh, been doing that for many years. I'm on the editorial board of the journal Labour Le Travail, which is the main journal of Canadian labour studies. I've been on the editorial board there for for some decades, an embarrassingly long time. Uh, and I am particularly interested in uh, 20th century Canadian uh, labour politics. Well, that's good, <laughs> because so are we, and that's what we brought you here today. And I'll be honest, um, we often grapple with the question of why the electoral left and isn't more successful, why labor isn't as militant. You know, we're real complainers around here, but we, we do try to find answers. And my producer here, Santiago, calls me one day, and, and I feel like he, he thought he found a real kind of... <laughs> promising seed of history there around the United Farmers of Ontario. Um, apparently, they were very successful in 1919 in winning the Ontario legislature in what we thought was a coalition with labor. So you can see why we got excited. <laughs> uh, electoral success plus coalitions, it held some promise there. So we reached out to you to kind of get a little bit more before we went off and did an episode on how we could learn lessons from that. So, and I'm really glad we did because you corrected me almost immediately in our email before we even got to talking. Um, 
Can you give folks an idea of what I'm talking about? So the what did the coalition between the UFO and labor look like back in 1919? Okay, to, to set the context, 1919 was actually two things. Uh, one was uh, the peak of a labor uprising after World War One, most uh, identified with the Winnipeg General Strike in the spring of 1919. But that year was marked by general strikes and near general strikes in at least a couple dozen uh, cities and towns across Canada, as well as a kind of international uprising. And uh, and so the strength of labor was very much rooted in that uh, in at this period of time. Uh, the same period was a peak in the kind of organization of farmers in Canada. Uh, farmers had, like labor, a long history of trying to organize in one way or another. And as a result, like labor in some ways, of some of the disruptions of World War I, uh, they became a substantial electoral force in their own name after World War I. And in 1921, uh, they had a, a breakthrough electorally. They formed the National Progressive Party and won 60-odd uh, seats across Canada. Uh, and uh, essentially, uh, they were the second largest party in the House of Commons, although they didn't take on that mantle because they rejected partyism, which is something I can get to later on. <laughs> and so there's these we two. We do too. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these two parallel movements, uh, which intersected in a lot of ways. They had the many of the same. Uh, interest in mind. They were both concerned in their own different ways in terms of the way uh, kind of corporate capitalism had taken uh, grip in North America. Although the relationship to that I'll get to is really quite different in some ways. Uh, but uh, this emerged across the country. In Ontario, uh, there, uh, there had been some history of labor electoral success on a small scale. But uh, they did have a breakthrough in the provincial election in the fall of 1919. Can I just ask a clarifying question? When we say labor with a big L, is it something akin to the Ontario Federa Federation of Labor, actual representatives from locals, from the different unions, or is it just a, a, a political party that called itself labor, as in like the UK does? Uh, both sort of, because of course, like okay. um, the UK, the, the Trades Union, Union Congress is affiliated, of course, to the Labour Party. And so there is that connection in a bit. Uh, the uh, In Canada, uh, in this period, there was a, a national trade union federation, right, the Trades and Labour Congress of Canada. Uh, provincially, they were poorly organized, generally. And so there was a, a kind of weak provincial organization coming together, uh, which has some connection to this process. But it really was uh, uh, labor, um, labor people independently putting it together, like people who had kind of real strong roots in the labor unions. And so Would you call that like grassroots organizing? Um, it was kind of grassroots organizing. It, it had a kind of interesting character. Um, and there was, 
there was in going back to the late 19th century, there was a, a movement, particularly in local municipalities, uh, to to elect labor representatives to the provincial legislature and uh, hopefully federally. They, um, their roots in many ways were local trades and labor councils in cities actually was much more important in this period of time uh, than the provincial and national uh, umbrella organizations. And so they did very much, I think, represent that. And they did uh, in the period of time we're looking at, they were largely uh, what we would call laborist. They uh, were really sort of small L liberals in some ways in terms of their ways that they viewed the world. They went back to a tradition of Gladstonian liberalism in the UK, uh, where there was uh, really interested in a growing democratization of the political system. Uh, but they had specific working class demands in, in one way or another, although they so were quite vague. You, they weren't rooted in socialism? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, not, at, not at this point. And this is an important part of the story uh, because they, uh, they tended to be sort of laborious, but at the end of World War I, there was a radicalization of labor, at least some segments of the labor movement. And so they were mixed. Okay. Which brought we see of, we see that now, right? Like yes, you yes. can't definitively say that about any, yeah. Yeah, uh, and so you know some of the people who were active in this were certainly moving left in, in various ways. Uh, both labor and the farmers had a general interest in kind of democratizing the political system, particularly after World War One and the ways that the state had become increasingly autocratic during the war, governing through. Mm -hmm decree basically through orders in council, uh, forcing people to do things without it going through parliament. But, uh, and so there was a sense that these were two oppressed classes that had a lot in common. And uh, they got elected, the uh, Labour elected uh, 11 MPPs, members of the provincial parliament, and uh, Farmers, uh, forty odd or so, a lot more. Oh, okay. Five, yeah. yeah, the countryside was overrepresented in many many ways. Labor did win in most important industrial cities, with a partial exception of Toronto, which is more of a mixed bag given the nature of the city. Still uh, they, is. <laughs> so there's parallels here. We haven't changed much. Yeah. So, and so they were elected in. Uh, October 1919. Both of them, in some ways, they represented more of a sentiment than a clear political program. They is that part of the why they weren't? There's not a lot of a longevity here. They don't last very long either as a coalition no. or in power. Well, well, quite quickly, they got into trouble because some of the specific things that Labour wanted, of course, were things like uh, the eight-hour day. And uh, the most famous dispute that happened almost immediately when they got elected uh, was at what we now call Ontario Hydro. Uh, this was a period of time in which Hydro had relatively recently been, been established as a kind of public enterprise, right? It had been organized by Adam Beck, who was a, in many ways a kind of local hero businessman because the idea of public electricity and so on was very popular. 
1919, workers working in, in the Niagara Peninsula for Ontario Hydro um, had won the eight-hour day. But the following year, and after the coalition government was elected, uh, they um, Adam Beck reneged and reintroduced the 10-hour day. To placate who? Is this something that the United Farmers of Ontario, you know, farmers don't work eight-hour days? So No, they don't. And this is going to be the dispute. It was okay. basically, um, you know, Hydro just trying to get people to work more, right? It's a... Uh, right is what we now call a crown corporation, but it has some autonomy from the government. And the question is how much autonomy. Uh, and in fact, the the Farmer Labor Caucus got into a fight over with about supporting the eight-hour day. And a lot of things were involved in this dispute. This was a period of time when hydro was very popular because they were building radial railways. There used to be in southern Ontario a network of light rail right, connecting cities and so on. You know, that it was a much better system than existed now, and it was very popular among workers and, and so on. You could go places. What? <laughs> so, and so Labour wanted, really, uh, the caucus to get involved and in one way or another force Adam Beck to do this. But for the reason that you suggested, that farmers were not really interested in the eight-hour day, it, it failed. In the end, 2,000 hydro workers went on strike, and within a couple of weeks, uh, lost the the strike, and so uh, we do have our eight hour day though. Well, eventually, eventually. you know, <laughs> some decades later, and so you know the ILP kind of lost a lot of support. Um, not so much lost support, but we're seen as kind of useless, and they were in a sense <laughs> kind of useless on two levels. No, that's, they that's simply fair. didn't have the power in the coalition government to get any of their demands. They were a bit outnumbered. Like that's what we were talking about earlier, Santiago, when you when you have coalitions, especially in the Canadian yeah. political sense, it's promising. People talk about it today, right? They in in ways to stop the conservatives. And you wonder how that would work when it came down to making some of these critical decisions when it wasn't equally shared power. Because yeah. And the broader context of that, in again, is what's happening after World War One, with a degree of labor radicalization, where the, the kind of political ideology of the independent labor party was really being surpassed. And what we do see coming out of this is a political labor movement, which is more explicitly socialist, and so on. So that's part of losing interest in the independent labor party. And so in many ways, they just quite quickly after being ineffective, uh, fade away. And they didn't elect anybody in southern Ontario in the next election in 1923. Ouch. How socialist were the United Farmers of Ontario? This is something I've kind of had difficulty finding a lot of information about. I can see that they advocated for policies that seem quite progressive, but... And, and I guess I'm surprised at like how not socialist the independent labor party were. Were like the farmers the more radical of the two? Uh, no. And the United Farmers of Ontario and other farmers organizations in Canada at the time shared a lot of language with the independent labor party. And they were really interested in some of the same things. Like during the war, they had been alienated 
um, from government policy in some similar ways. They both labor and the farmers wanted, uh, there was conscription during World War I, uh, and both labor and the farmers wanted conscription of wealth, as they put it, mm. right? That because, of course, during the war, working class and farmer boys were being sent off to die in Europe uh, while corporations were getting rich, right? And that was, you know, kind of repulsive. And they were also both interested in things like direct legislation and so on, things like the referendum, the ability to recall politicians, those types of things. Uh, so those were their sort of issues. The The farmer's revolt is actually very interesting because it has different characteristics in some ways in different places. And with the aftermath of the First World War, uh, when the farmer's movement explodes, there really are two tendencies within the farmer's movement. There is... Uh, W.L. Morton, the historian, wrote about this decades ago and characterized the two tendencies as the Albertans and the Manitobans. Uh, and the Albertans were more hmm. radical in a couple interesting ways. I would have um, bet wrong there. <laughs> no, no. Under the leadership of this guy called Henry Wise Wood, they talked about what they called group government. Part of the problem they saw in what they term partyism, right, where politicians are elected and they're more loyal to their parties <laughs> than they are to their constituents. Mm -hmm. and, and so... They had a solution. Uh, yeah, and so the solution was really to revamp entirely the parliamentary system <laughs> and have a system of group government where representatives of farmers, representatives of labor, representatives of business would meet, right? They would get elected as such from those constituencies, meet and negotiate their differences. We're giggling because like we had a conversation earlier today and we're, you know, <laughs> we're dreaming up a better parliamentary yeah. system. That's what we do in our spare time. And like, we're feeling this, right? Because these... this was literally, this was, this was literally our conversation earlier where we were like, essentially the fascination behind this came behind like the idea of a party running candidates not across all the ridings but specifically choosing to run in certain ridings to represent that and then one thing that jessa was kind of saying was that like those those divisions possibly being problematic and then well kind of where that led to was a conversation about how just the very parliamentary system in and of itself in this idea that by representing certain geographical areas that you can represent the the people of that area like the very parliamentary system itself is so deeply flawed that it just calls for like is the solution right. to like run in only certain areas or is the solution complete reform and obviously we're like yeah the solution is completely down. <laughs> changing the system and i saw that the united farmers like they advocated for more direct legislation and proportional representation which is i mean still stuff that we right. talk about and hope for in some ways today like a long time after and in some places they won certain things like coming out of this in manitoba uh for i don't know how long they kept it but the city of Winnipeg was one constituency that that elected 10 members of the legislature in a kind of, you know, those who, it was very confusing and it took weeks to figure out who won because there would be a whole list of people running. And then if 
people had to number their choices. And so they'd count everybody and then uh, drop off the bottom one and redistribute their votes and count them all again until there were 10 people who got a majority. The problem for the, um, the Albertans, right, and they were mostly from uh, United Farmers of Alberta, was once they got to Ottawa, they had problem functioning in the House of Commons. Uh, as I said, they refused to be the official opposition. They refused to have any kind of party discipline, right, because that's partyism. And they were really easily outflanked by the prime minister, right, uh, Mackenzie King. And uh, eventually uh, they kind of declined. The other problem was that uh, a lot of their representatives were sort of the Manitobans, they, who were really liberals, right? They'd come out of the Liberal Party and they were simply disappointed in uh, the policies of the Liberal Party and what had become to pass with the Liberal Party. And so they really didn't have much radicalism in that sense at all. They really represented that. And the United Farmers of Ontario were more Manitoban than the Manitobans, <laughs> right? <They really> <laughs> That's such a Canadian thing to say. <laughs> so, you know, there was a little bit of a kind of dead end to do that. Is um, One of the things about farmers, and this is, I think, at the root of, of the problem, is, of course, labor reacted as labor, regardless of how radical or not they were, they approached the world through their experience at the point of production. Yeah. Right. They saw, you know, they wanted to kind of deal with that. And that's how they interacted with the world. This, of course, is not true of farmers at all. Uh, the farmers relationship to the world was through the marketplace. So even the idea of group government and so on was one kind of based in the marketplace where one negotiates just like one negotiates prices and those kinds of things. They didn't see a kind of fundamental problem. Is that because they already own the means of production? Yeah, you know, and they, you know, talked, that's a language they used, right? They're both employer and employee yeah. in themselves. And that's... Uh, and so it is an odd kind of utopianism in that it doesn't um, it doesn't deal with real relationships of power in society in the way that labor implicitly because of where they sat in the production process did. I think this is key too to your question, Santiago, because he's searching mm -hmm. for a way to make farmers socialist yeah. again. And now we're finding out that you know obviously you can't broad stroke anything. Just to give but... a little bit of background here, um, because I'm coming at this, um, I, I'm from Colombia originally, and t in today's Latin American politics, we see that leftist movements are, are, are quite built around r the rural vote. They're strongest in rural areas and weakest in urban right. centers, which is the complete opposite of, of what we see here. And, and I've been trying to kind of like figure out like, why that is and what we can learn from that and i found just when i when i heard about like the united farmers of ontario it seems like just such a such a contrast to what we have today where you know farmers uh, well rural parts of of canada in general tend to be quite conservative and and vote conservative but the conservatives don't really seem to be putting out a message that should appeal to rural canada so i guess i'm confused why that is and what what it is that we can learn from this and why it is that 
the NDP struggles, for example? Part of the answer is there because to some extent, we can see some of that radicalization, right, as a result of the real destitution of the countryside in some places. Although even there is kind of mixed because there's different kinds of farmers in different situations in different places. And so... You mean some are not feeling the depression at the same level? Yeah. And there's different kind of scales of landholding and all of that. Sure. Right? We have not really studied agriculture to that extent, but it's an interesting story because in 1932, uh, the um, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation is founded, right? The CCF, the forerunner of uh, the NDP, uh, which I've written about, and it really is quite different in many ways than the CCF would become. But uh, it was founded in Calgary in 1932 by the small labor parties in each of the four western provinces. They met together and decided to form the CCF. Uh, and participating in that actually were some remnants of the United Farmers of Alberta, uh, known as the Ginger Group, were, who were the somewhat more radical. Such weird names, Waffles, Ginger <laughs> Group. Okay. That's right. It's. People were hungry, I guess, when they were thinking of names. I always thought there were more farmers involved with the formation of the CCF, but saying it's like just really a small group from Alberta. Well, it's uh, initially. Uh, okay. And when it's founded, it has, uh, it's called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, colon, Farmer Labor Socialist. Yeah, like that kind of gives you the impression, yeah. you know, and they were kind of leading the way. As a coalition, you couldn't join the CCF as an individual member. You had to join one of those constituent parts. So a farmer's cooperative. Yeah, a farmer's, yeah, like the United Farmers of Alberta, which did affiliate to the CCF when it was formed. Uh, and so... Uh, and there is a narrative that the NDP really developed later on that the CCF was this kind of broader coalition, you know, uh, and central to its founding were farmers and central Canadian intellectuals from the League for Social Reconstruction and, and so on. But it's really not true. It was really <laughs> formed by these well, kind of labor I'm parties. used to them lying to me, so. And the... And the story that people like uh, the farmers or social gospel-influenced religious people uh, were part of forming it is exaggerated. They were certainly there, uh, but they played a really marginal role. And uh, very quickly in the CCF, outside of Saskatchewan, there were hardly any farmers at all. They... And I want to get back to the role of the UFO in Ontario because it's particularly bizarre. Uh, but outside of Saskatchewan, there's really not much. The Manitoban farmers didn't affiliate. You mean far, farmer organizations? Because farmers exist. Farmers exist, yeah. But the just farm- not in a political yeah. organization. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and... We need to, to some extent, them. they didn't affiliate as farmers because you had to join something else to join the CCF. And so if the farmers organizations don't join, and, and the same was quite true of uh, British Columbia. I'll get back to Saskatchewan because it's a, a special case. In, and in Ontario, there's a really interesting story because in Ontario, there were um, the three constituencies 
were represented uh, first by the United Farmers of Ontario, right? They say they're going to join. And then for labor, it was something called the Labor Conference, which was put together, uh, largely put together by the Socialist Party of Ontario at the time. And third, uh, the socialist bit was the so-called CCF clubs. And so you could kind of join as an individual if you joined a CCF club. And, but the CCF club had largely been organized by the League for Social Reconstruction, these Toronto and Montreal intellectuals. You know, some of them, like uh, Graham Spry and people like that, are quite familiar to sort of Canadian intellectual history. Were these things organized in the sense that we organize around ridings now? No, no. So it wasn't geographic, but I mean, by workplace, it might be your local. Neighborhoods. They were organized by neighborhoods very much. Oh, they were organized by neighborhoods, but not lines drawn by no, another No, because um, they were necessarily so electoral, mm. right? They had a kind of, that was part of their strategy, but not all of it. Okay. Uh, and so the um, there was a Socialist Party of Ontario um, and a Social Party, Socialist Party of British Columbia, each of which have really interesting histories, because uh, particularly in the last half of the 30s, um, I would suggest they're to the left of the Communist Party, once the Communist Party starts its popular front period. They're left of the Communist Party. Yeah, they describe nice. themselves as revolutionaries. Surely. And in fact, there was a debate in the BC Socialist Party about whether they should join the Fourth International. So it's, you know, they're, and they're critical of the Communist Party for abandoning working class politics during the Popular Front period. <laughs> How did that happen? They, because what really marked the Labour, and it comes from the Labour Party, and it's all the way through, even though it becomes more radical. These are people who identify fundamentally as workers, and often they don't have a clear political program. But what they want is a working class world, right? They want a world in which um, those who earn their keep by hard work or by brain work and so on are the people who kind of run society. And that's how they could connect with farmers in an earlier period, because both farmers and labor are producerist in a certain way, right? Those who make things should run society, not just those who are parasitic to, to society. So they agree on that early on. But and arguably, we could say nobody is parasitic to society, right? Because everyone contributes, well, right? Like that's a the problem with meritocracy is an inherent ableism that's worked into that. With no, listeners. no, that's fair enough. But who they're talking to, this goes way back mm -hmm. to the nice of labor where anybody could join except for gamblers. They were temperance people. So gamblers, lawyers, bankers, or... Um, oh, that's okay. Or, like bankers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was their death. Gamblers, you know, like, see, then, then that's a values call, but, I, you know, there's lots of issues with the parties of Oh, yeah, of no, your... I get what you're saying, but basically it was a critique of people who lived off the labor of others in a particular kind of way, really, of exploiting their labor. Like or bankers. landlords. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when we're talking about people that are parasitic, and, but that, that's, I understand now. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's the kind of background to this, where farmers and labor would agree in this kind of view of the world in some ways. Yeah. But you know, in the um, 
by the 1920s and the 1930s, there's this sort of radicalization, and a certain number of people go into the Communist Party. But those who don't, who go into the CCF, are in many cases, particularly the CCF labor components, uh, they tend to um, be, for one reason or another, often people who wanted a revolutionary transformation of society. How that was going to be done, right, electorally or not, was up to question still. <laughs> We're still trying to figure that out. Because, of course, you know, then or now, how one does this in a capitalist liberal, liberal democracy is unclear. Because you've already said when they tried to stick to their guns and some of the values that they held, they were ineffectual in the legislature. Had always said, you know, we told you so, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's helpful. You know, yes. But by by the 1930s, you know, their their view of the world was increasingly, like in a lot of cases, the CCF held lots of, they often had film nights on the Soviet Union and stuff like that. But in one way, way or another, they simply felt that the Soviet Union, either because of Stalinization or because it was simply a different society, was inappropriate to the Canadian context. Uh, but they certainly were not kind of, they, they saw it as a worker state, certainly in the 1930s, and were sympathetic. So it's an interesting uh, kind of development. And you know, what happens in... Uh, the early years is that in Ontario, the Ontario ETF is put together. They have a kind of provincial council uh, with three representatives from each of the affiliated groups, right? But then, you know, things happen because at the point in uh, the early 1930s, when the Ontario government decided to clamp down on the Communist Party and arrest the eight leaders of the Communist Party, who they shipped off to Kingston Penitentiary, CCF really wants to do something, right, about this assault on civil liberties. And they organize at, uh, in Massey Hall, a, uh, an event where A.E. Smith, right, who's a communist, uh, old Methodist minister, originally from Brandon, Manitoba, um, was um, leader of the, um, the, Communist Party's kind of civil defense, civil liberties organization. And so they have uh, an event at Massey Hall featuring him, and things explode. Both the farmers and some people from the CCF club complain. Uh, but and it creates this kind of issue. It's Canadian Labour Defence League. This led to a chain of events where uh, the farmers and um, some people from the CCF clubs want to kick out the labor conference. And at this point, J.S. Woodsworth, right, the national leader of... Because they were commies? Because they were commish, com communist -ish. Because some people might not realize this, there were a lot of labor organizations that did not allow you to join as an officer. Like, you couldn't be elected if you were a member of the Communist Party. Like, you could not be elected at your local... If you were a member of the Communist Party, that persisted even when my dad was a shop steward. And a lot of that actually comes after World War II during the Cold War in many ways. And particularly. But clearly, Cold there's like red baiting that is persuading people to yeah. well, particularly distance after, themselves. Um, Taft Hartley has passed in the United States in the late 40s, yeah. which prohibited communists from 
<laughs> being active in unions. But at this time, it's um, not so much that they're communists. And in fact, um, the Communist Party doesn't really seem to have been active in the CCF as such. But there was simply that this was, you know, they're, they're, even though they kind of hated each other in terms of political fights, they did, in fact, um, basically view each other as class comrades in some way. And so, you know. Well, they are, right? Like we're talking about the working yeah, class yeah. here. By definition, they are. So you're when you're talking about these folks not getting along, like this is the three different kind of branches yeah. within. But I'm saying not getting along in that even sort of the labor people in the CCF would have fights with the Communist Party people outside of the CCF, um, particularly during the third period in the early 1930s. when the So us leftists never really ever got <laughs> yeah. along. <laughs> well, you know, these are to some extent, logical fights to be had. But what came down sure. to another working class organization being repressed by the state, the labor people in the CCF wanted to defend them. And so Woodsworth, as national leader, um, wanted to purge the labor component from the CCF. And so the um, the executive committees of both the United Farmers of Ontario and the CCF clubs um, asked the National Council of the CCF to expel the Labour Conference. Woodsworth pointed out that this was actually up to provinces to do this, right? The provincial CCFs, right? It's not a, because it, um, these are really, the CCF still was a string of provincial organizations largely. But Woodsworth kind of pointed out that if um, the delegates on the provincial council of the farmers, United Farmers and the CCF clubs voted, they could unilaterally just kick the labor conference out, right? Because they would have, um, I mean, six votes to three, and they could expel them. And in fact, the farmers and the kind of right-wing leadership of the CCF clubs uh, wanted to do it without even holding a provincial council meeting, say, you know, why bother... <laughs> you know, wasting money. Getting... I'm having flashbacks, <laughs> Santiago. This no, is yeah. the NDP. The, this is how they currently operate. It's, it's a little there bit is... terrifying how many parallels there are. It was. And so that's what they want to. Although Woodsworth did point out that that would be kind of unseemly, <laughs> <laughs> that they should actually get together and do this. And they planned a meeting. However, before they had a meeting, the United Farmers of Ontario quit the Ontario CCF, right? They had some God. meeting and they just kind of walked out. Um, having never, as far as I can tell, ever paid a nickel in dues to the CCF, they had joined, but never really um, taken. Not in earnest, I suppose. And so what happened then was the Labour Council, the Labour Conference was kicked out. So there's the CCF clubs and the farmers. And they can't, the Labour Conference can't be picked out, kicked out because there's no longer a majority to kick them out. It's just the CCF clubs and the Labour Conference with three representatives each. And so at which point Woodsworth responded by immediately suspending the Provincial Council of the Ontario CCF, got Graham Spry, who was a leader of the, um, the LSR, the League for Social Reconstruction, this kind of group of intellectuals. The Labour Conference was just read out of the CCF and some of the more responsible Labour people would be invited back in. Oh, wait, wait, responsible. So like centrists yeah. and, yeah. you know, 
more level heads, exactly. less radical folks. And so then they, that's when they began, Santiago. That's when they began to reorganize the Ontario CCF on a constituency basis, right? Pointing to a real turn towards electoralism. As the sole purpose of its organization. Yeah, although there is a footnote to all of this, because once they kicked out the labor conference, they soon realized that they had kicked out everybody who knew how to do anything. (laughs) No, 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 no. just please. This is, I feel like you're telling my story. This fills in so many gaps. (laughs) They... Because a lot of the people who had joined the CCF clubs um, were a really kind of mixed bag of people. There were lots of potential nuts interested in... Sure, the working class, friend, right? (laughs) We come in all sizes. And and so um, there was, and actually Graham Spry, shortly afterwards, started a kind of recruitment campaign and so on to put the CCF back on a revolutionary path. Okay. Right, that's the kind of language they're using, even though that's not what we may think they want. But they, but with the labor conference people gone, um, there was the CCF didn't have any kind of direction, and you know he did, you know, want some kind of socialist kind of. Thing. Who would have thought centrists had no direction <laughs> right. to them? So it's, as on. it turned out, is kind of quite funny, and this sort of. In a devastating way, though. As a class struggle in the CCF goes on for a couple years. Yeah. I mean, we've done many episodes here on the operations of the current working left party, which is all we've got is the NDP, apparently. And they've repeated these tactics and this division and infighting and expulsion and... Yeah. It's funny how we moving to the center, like preferring candidates and organizations that are more centrist in nature and then become completely ineffective as a result. We were hoping to learn. <laughs> in the early 1920s, another farmers organization uh, emerged called the Farmers Union, uh, which was more radical and explicitly referred to themselves as a one big union of farmers. Right. And this is the same. Era as they weren't, but that was what they expi- yeah. aspired to be. Well, they did speak more explicitly about the class struggle, and they did send kind of fraternal delegates to union meetings and so on. Uh, because, and the two organizations merged in 1926 to form the United Farmers of Canada Saskatchewan section, um, which was more heterogeneous because it's being joined is really, but it's led by kind of left-wingers from the Farmers Union. Uh, and it was this group which called for controversial uh, use-lease policy in where there would be public ownership of all land. Uh, then farmers would sort of lease land from the provincial government. Because, of course, what's going on... Well, that's, that's pretty radical. That is very radical. And part of the story is, and I think what was happening, of course... You know, farmers want to maintain control of their land. And in the 1930s, they were losing it. They were, you know, they couldn't pay their mortgages. They, you know, they were being foreclosed upon and so on. And having the provincial government own and lease it back to them provided them with more security, potentially. Uh, So this didn't actually last very long as a policy, uh, but it does show uh, a bit of the uh, thinking because that's something that even to this day we rarely challenge is the idea of land ownership oh, no, private exactly la- land ownership 
Yeah, and it was hard to challenge. It wouldn't have been to challenge, I don't think, before the Depression either. But, you know, when people are losing their property in such huge numbers, potentially, to the bank. And and that's a theme throughout this discussion as well. It's like the greater the devastation, the more radicalized the politics that tend to come out of that particular group, or at least the more open they are to complete transformation of the system or as a solution. Which makes sense, of course, because yeah. things become normalized in society, usually in different ways. But in a crisis, things aren't normal, right? And that is implicitly challenged. Because in your book, The Fate of Labor Socialism, you describe the Great Depression as a crisis of capitalism, yeah. which it clearly was. And we've had so many since, but like when thinking of current day, and, you know, the management of COVID and and so many, the climate crisis. How do we not get there, though? Like, I feel like we're not making those same connections and mm. that the labor movement, we don't have very many wings to point to like you have right. that are pushing forth such radical ideas anymore. And, you know, we don't have a lot of time left. I know we wanted to kind of work through the timeline, but if you could help us kind of understand where you think it was lost in a way or you know maybe you disagree with me there sure like there's there's a lot there's a lot to this story right and i'm sure you're familiar with lot, <laughs> yeah, I know. lots of it you know the various things are going on one was the nature of society you know in the great boom after world war ii and the way in which working class identity was submerged within that there was the nature of the kind of historic compromise after World War II, where labor won collective bargaining rights, right? And the RAND formula, the check off of dues, union security and all those things, but gave up a lot, right? And in terms of control over the workplace and so on, but it also led to greater bureaucratization of the labor movement, right? Where to most workers today, um, their union is largely seen as deduction on their paychecks. Right. They don't have that close a connection to it anymore. And grievances and negotiations are increasingly run by lawyers and all of those sorts of things. And so so that and really the decline of this kind of working class identity, which characterized all of this in the early 20th century, whether it was the laborists or the Communist Party or the CCF labor types, their fundamental identity was as labor. And even though they may disagree on political programs, they all agree that what they wanted to see was some kind of society run by working people, right? And that's just so remote uh, to where we are now. Uh, But as... Oh, good, there's a but. Uh, as you were sort of um, implying earlier and suggested that we might want to talk about, um, the issue of general strikes is, you know, um, percolating. percolating still. And it and it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about general strikes because in 2019, we held a big event in Winnipeg to mark the 100th anniversary of the Winnipeg general strike. And we recently last fall published a book. Um, coming out of it with some contributions from that. But the editors, uh, Jim Machorik, Rhonda Hinther, and myself, wrote a couple chapters about the historiography of the Winnipeg general strike and then a kind of think piece about what the general strike meant nowadays. And, you know, obviously what comes most to the fore is the way in which it was a working class event, right? And it, and it was a working class increasingly intersectional event in that even in 1919 1919, you call it that right where 
there have been earlier in 1919, for instance, anti-immigrant riots in, yeah. in Winnipeg and, and so on. And it was kind of assumed in some ways that returning soldiers, right, from the First World War, uh, just coming back to Canada, uh, would be all hepped up on patriotism, right? They kind of ignored the experience that they'd had in Europe and um, would um, be easily turned against immigrants or slackers who didn't join up and all those sorts of things. But what really happened was that veterans, by and large, decided upon their class identity within this context to support the strike. And immigrant Nothing workers, reinforces that than living in the trenches, you know, for a while. No, exactly. And being, um, and their officers all being upper class folks from back in Canada, right? It's the First World War Army was a very class structured organization. Uh, but then also uh, the amazing ways in which immigrants from mostly Eastern and Central Europe, um, who didn't have a lot to gain from the strike, really joined in. And there was this real um, sense of camaraderie, class camaraderie uh, through the city, really, which really changed the character of Winnipeg, you know, and led to a North End, which elected CCF, NDP, and communist folks. Uh, for the rest of the decade, there was a communist on Winnipeg City Council continuously from the late 20s to 1981. So it's, you know, it was a kind of class event. Obviously, it didn't break down all kinds of divisions. Like there was very little recognition of indigeneity within the city. Or... I mean, that doesn't surprise me, given the timing. It, no. You know, it's it, even it's promising that the fact that you called it, we were able to label it as intersectional. And back then, we have to be careful talking about some of the members of the CCF and the founding members of other parties in the eugenics role. And, you know, not all positions were good positions, even by oh, sure. um, progressives looking to the Winnipeg general strike and the work of coalitions there and, and what you kind of seen shape up in Ontario um, in response to Doug Ford. And we call it the almost general strike that we got to. Are you hopeful that you know, labor can radicalize itself and its membership again. Well, sure, and, there is. And actually, it's interesting because the folks that organized the 2019 event were having another event in May as part of Winnipeg May Works, um, which is about current things. And, you know, we're bringing in uh, Laura Walton from QB yes. education workers and various people to kind of talk about some of these issues. And of course, it's not just Ontario, right? There was uh, the BC Solidarity Movement in 1983, Ontario Days of Action in the mid-90s, and so on, right? There are move and Quebec's a common front stuff in Quebec back in the 70s or 80s, I forget when. Um, but, you know, there are movements towards general strikes because these things have a logic in them, right? Because, of course, particularly state-based neoliberal assaults on the labor movement cross boundaries and draw people into them. And so this does seem to happen over and over again, right? The big pr problem is um, two things and they're connected. One, the role of officialdom in negotiating things behind people's backs and making deals. You mean like the the fact that it's been handed over to to lawyers for the most part to do the negotiating or are are you referring even to the way you know QP uh, stood down from Ford without yeah. well that's not you know asking their members yeah like in some ways that's not a particularly egregious one because decisions have to be made and the other thing Quickly. I would say about general strikes 
if there's a movement towards a general strike, and this is one of the things that came out of the Winnipeg general strike. One of the first historians of the Winnipeg general strikes, important ones, was David Berkison, who wrote Confrontational Winnipeg in the 70s. And it's, in many ways, it's a good book. He's, he was a liberal. Um, and he kind of argued that general strikes are naturally disastrous, right? Because, but, you know, but our response to that because when we discuss the historiography of the Winnipeg general strike, is that that's not necessarily the case, but you need a leadership, uh, which of course has, um, is based on really active membership and this being a useful dynamic thing, but also one with some kind of political intelligence of not only how you start a general strike, but how you get out of it without a defeat. Yes, we talked to John Clark about the days of action, and that was one of the big problems there. It's like we built the momentum, had the Mm -hmm. moment, and didn't know what to ask for next or couldn't come to an agreement on what to ask for next. And it was like, in hindsight, all those plans should have been laid out ahead of time so that they could move as fast as possible without losing that momentum. Yeah, and John Clark is another speaker at our upcoming event in May, so... This is a, oh, you're you're selling tickets here to I'm the audience. Tickets, right? JP Hornick is a. Um, I would be curious to hear from them as well. Uh, I I felt like JP was critical in kind of radicalizing that almost general strike. You know, right. there was something like you spoke earlier. You know, no, no real vested interest other than you know setting precedent for losing their bargaining rights. But right. you know, it wasn't their fight, and to show that kind of cross-solidarity oh, well, absolutely was the moment for me <laughs> yeah. right. and this was really important in solidarity in bc and in the ontario days of action because uh, particularly because these are provincial government assaults on the labor movement and the provincial governments provide really necessary service to people and there are these other constituencies that become increasingly mobilized and so on um, you have to find the balance between a working class oriented and led movement because labor has the power and one that's kind of respectful of everyone else involved. The social movement. The social movements, yeah. Yes. You know, which yes. are, you know, well, in in retrospect, it's easy to see, you know, some of the components that are necessary in a kind of general strike. But it is a challenge, right? The post-war labor accord that was fashioned after World War II involved, you know, incredibly harsh penalties for people who break it, right? And really, in terms of the financial penalties and so on, uh, are meant to crush the unions that break the rules. And, you know, labor leaders don't want this to happen for two reasons. One, this this is their livelihood, right? They're, they're part of that apparatus. But secondly, they do care about their organizations, which they played an important role in building. You know, so there is a tendency, you know, for them to back down and to reach some kind of accord. Yeah, especially when you're so consistently under attack, right? No, exactly. uh, to stick your neck out, you need to weigh that that balance. But I just feel in this province, especially, we're kind of at our wits end wondering uh, at what point, you know, do you do that cost benefit analysis and realize that uh, it's now or never. But um, we do. We have to wrap up. Santiago, you haven't had a chance to ask many questions. Do you have? Oh, I have too many questions I, because I came into this thinking like, what what could we learn from the way things were done differently? And I found out that things are actually done quite the same. <laughs> and, 
And that that just poses so many questions, I guess, of like looking at all like the fact that we're repeating a lot of the same mistakes that were done. What is it then that is the right direction for us to go? Because clearly we haven't found it. Clearly we haven't changed. So if the answer is not in the past, like what is the answer? And I don't really know if that's a question that we could that we can answer here. Wrap but up on, you know, no, it is, it is. Professor Niller, you need the answer to the question. Okay, Santiago, I do think I have an answer. And oh. It may not be the answer, but one of the things, of course, that I referred to that was lost was a kind of working class identity, right? And there's so many things in our society that, um, undermine working class identity, right? The, you know, from the tendency to talk about workers as middle class to mm-hmm. um, the really um, disappearing nature of work, right? It's not part of the public discourse in various ways. And the la- among things that the labor movement has a difficult time doing is to provide a kind of cultural center for labor, right? Where they Mm. where they function together as workers thinking about the world in a class-oriented way. And then they can begin to imagine a world in which labor plays a fundamentally different role than they do today. And that was in the 1920s and 1930s. That working class identity was everywhere. And in fact, one of the problems of that period of time was um, a lot of people in the political labor movement didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out political programs and so on because they just figured one way or another, when we're in charge, we'll know what to do, right? Because we're workers <laughs> and we're going to run society in the interest of the working class. But it's really that kind of thinking, I think, which is really kind of important. Uh, and, you know, some unions are trying to do that. Various kinds of institutions like Mayworks and stuff like that are trying to do things like that. But that, I think, is um, an important part of the answer. We also argue that the political parties of today, so, you know, the NDP or anything that would start to replace them, should include other aspects. Like an electoral win isn't the only thing your resources should be pointed towards, that that building that working class consciousness is so critical because it's usually the why didn't this work answer. Specifically, when we look at labor unions, we expect them to be politicized, but just even the general public, right? There's just so much work there and to do in terms of changing that narrative. And I I feel like neither the political parties or organized labor have really taken on that job in earnest. You know, they've kind of triaged their resources. Well, the best example of that, Jess, is sort of a recent public opinion poll, which pointed to the fact of how few union members support the NDP, right? Yes, I do see that. The conservatives, right? It was was appalling. Part of that is uh, the NDP not really identifying as a working class party and recognizing that that's where their constituency lies. I feel seen. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, we're on the same page there completely. Thank you so much for taking the time to kind of walk us through that part of labor history. We've never explored on the show and I definitely learned a lot. Santiago, I think, needs to digest this a little bit. <laughs> right. I, I feel like his soul was crushed. But also, yeah, those parallels were sometimes really hard for me to sit here and hear. I wanted to mute and just scream <laughs> because... I, I really did, like Santiago said, like wanted lessons to be like, if we could just get there again or mimic this. And, and really, it's just like, we should have already learned from this history. More people should have read uh, Professor Naylor's books, which we will all link to the episode. Oh, 
Thank you. Because I'm going through your works and I'm like, oh my gosh, like now I have even more questions for this man, like um, all about, you know, resistance and large movements and coalitions and uh, in that labor political history. You you know what is coming to mind for me is uh, I I know this quote in Spanish. I don't I'm pretty sure it's in English, but I I don't uh, el que no conoce la historia está condenado a repetirla. Like if you don't know history, history, you're condemned to repeat it. And that's I think what I'm taking away (laughs) from this is that we because this is not this is not anything that most Canadians have ever been exposed to at all. No. Well, no, it's true. And, uh, you know, and I think it is a really important history, which is why we're trying to do these more public events and so on. There are some real things to kind of learn from this history because you can learn from defeats, of course. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, people in history are defeated not because they were wrong, but they may have been tactically wrong at certain points and, and such things. But you know, they did have, in the 1920s and 30s, there was this incredible working class culture, which is the one thing I want to get back to. I describe in Fate of Labor Socialism, sort of a week of events in Winnipeg in the late 1920s, which included kind of labor events every night of the week, somewhere in the city of substantial concerts or plays or discussions or visitors coming through, you know, and that is... You know, and I think that's unique. That that has to be part of anything that is what else. I talk about quite a bit. Actually, is that cultural? And it's something elements. actually that it's something that actually the Latin American left has done very well at different. I've times. talked about it's it in exactly that concept of like learning from La- because yeah. we were exploring like the recent success of Latin American movements, and I, I I'm a big advocate for that need of that culture outside of it all. Yeah. Uh, this is. It's funny how it all. We talked about like back. the music, right? Yeah. Food, other things that bring you together, other than crises. Oh yeah, no. An important part of my kind of political life was being around in the seventies after the <laughs> the coup in Chile, and I had a lot of Chilean friends. I had a friend who had a band called Red Guardia, and they had events all the time with <laughs> empanadas and you know, dancing and music and so on, and politics. <laughs> that sounds you know, perfect. <laughs> I'm glad we could draw some lessons from defeat because we've had quite a few of them <laughs> here in Canada on the left. And Santiago and I are desperately trying to wade through anything we can find to make for some successes. We're, we need a formula. So you've, you've played a big part in kind of helping us solve some of these puzzles that we had, specifically around the urban-rural divide and the history of farmers politically, because that was definitely this kind of blind spot in my knowledge, for sure. So yeah. I, I'm sure our audience also appreciated the the history lesson. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this a lot. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.